0: Welcome to another edition of Governed by God, a discussion of law, civics, and government from a biblical perspective. I'm your host, Eric Leupold, and I thank you for joining me this morning. I ask that you please uh, share the show with a friend, like, thumbs up, stars, reviews, all those things help to uh, get the podcast out to more individuals. You can also go to Facebook.com and search for the Governed by God podcast. Uh, You can share that uh, there on on your page, which would be very helpful. I'm also on Twitter and also on Patreon.com for those of you who wish to support me and keep the lights on. Just search for Governed by God. And lastly, I am part of the Striving for Eternity uh, network, essentially the Christian podcast community. So if you go to podcast.strivingforeternity.org, you'll find a whole host of other podcasts that uh, you might uh, Uh, find helpful, useful, and uh, I think would would be good to check out. So with that, let us begin by going to our Law of the Day. Now, our Law of the Day is from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 through 21, if you wish to follow along in your copy of Scripture. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed, only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, "'shall a charge be established. "'If a malicious witness arises "'to accuse a person of wrongdoing, "'then both parties to the dispute "'shall appear before the Lord, "'before the priests and the judges "'who are in office in those days. "'The judges shall inquire diligently, "'and if the witness is a false witness "'and has accused his brother falsely, "'then you shall do to him "'as he had meant to do to his brother. "'So you shall purge the evil from your midst, "'and the rest shall hear and fear.' and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So, to explain a little bit about this law, it is basically one of the cornerstones of justice, not just in the land of Israel. I would say the cornerstone of justice at all. First of all, it's important that there are multiple witnesses, and that cannot be understated. If, if we were to have a system where no witnesses were required or one witness was acceptable, uh, the manipulation of that system would be, would be rampant. Um, any rumor or any slanderous accusation uh, would result in um, condemnation for many innocent people. And it would turn into a society where everyone is guilty until they're proven innocent one just has to think about more recently the uh, hearings regarding Brett Kavanaugh and how he was accused of sexual immorality and and things of that nature uh, many decades ago. And for the most part, there was one witness. And with that, his name, his family, his reputation were dragged through the mud. And it wasn't right that one witness should be enough to destroy a person forever. So in such a situation you would end up with a tyranny of the mob where everybody is afraid of his neighbor because if his neighbor decides to just bring about a false accusation and be a false witness well then you're hauled off to jail and that's the end of that so nothing but fear is is rampant and there are examples of this taking place in entire societies kind of on a small scale you have the Salem witch trials where um, you know you just denounce a person as a witch and they are hauled in, you know, and investigated um, and condemned without enough witnesses. Another example would be the Soviet Union, where if you were denounced by your neighbor or by your superior or by a fellow citizen, uh, you could find yourself being visited in the middle of the night and hauled off to the gulag. Um, One example of this is given by uh, the author Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who, in his own situation, he was a an officer in the Red Army, and he was denounced by another officer um, for no particular reason, and the officers had it in for him. And so, uh, Alexander was stripped of his rank and thrown into the gulags um, just by one witness alone. So, what does that mean, then, to have the requirement of two or three witnesses? I mean, the other side of the coin is that there will sometimes be people who get away with things because if you have if you do require that many witnesses well if there's only one witness you cannot condemn and so you very well may have situations where um criminals uh, the guilty get away with murder they get away with uh their um their evil act and nothing can be done about that well that is the world that we live in and interestingly uh, I like how um uh, William Blackstone, who was an English judge and jurist in the 1700s, and he wrote a book called uh, "The Commentaries on the Laws of England," which I highly recommend taking a look at. It's it's very big, of course, but uh, as a Christian, he he went through all the laws and and uh, and provided commentary on it and tied it to a lot of it to Scripture. But he said that it is better that ten guilty persons escape than one innocent person suffer. Now, why is that? Well. Because God's people, Christians and and the old covenant Jews, they recognize that God brings justice, God brings ultimate justice, and that even if, by some chance, the wicked get away with the crime, well, God knows the truth, and God will deal with that person, and there is going to be ultimate justice and ultimate judgment upon that person. So, um, we can rest assured that even if they escape earthly justice, they will not escape heavenly justice. And perhaps that person will uh, be convicted uh, of their sin in their heart and be saved and then turn their life around. That again is in, is in God's hands. Um, but there has to be balance. And this requirement of two or three witnesses provides the healthy balance. If you go too low, then you get uh, rampant false accusations, um, you know, repeats of Salem witch trials in a society living in fear of their neighbor. If you require too many witnesses, then you have the problem of of justice is not being done. Too many innocent people are, are, being, um, are being victimized, and um, the criminal is not being dealt with, and, and too many guilty people are escaping from justice. So God's law provides a healthy balance. And if, you know, we don't like that, if if we still want and demand more justice and more accurate and perfect justice here on this earth, um, what we're doing is we're not trusting in God's sovereignty. Um, To demand perfect justice today is to expect too much from any human government, and it shows a lack of faith in God. And really what you end up doing is you're demanding that the government plays the role of God, and search into the hearts of individuals and bring about perfect justice. And that's also one of the problems we have with hate crimes and all hate crime legislation. Because even though hatred's a sin, racism is a sin, all these things are sins, um, they're not crimes. To hate someone because of the color of their skin is not a crime. It's a sin, Okay, And for us to demand that government treat it like a crime is for us to demand that the government search into the hearts of individuals and to know their hearts, to know their thoughts, um, which is just something that the government cannot do. And it will only lead to more injustice if we try to do that. The other part of this law is with regard to the punishment that is given to false witnesses. And this highlights the importance of truth-telling in any justice system, Uh, being a witness is a serious matter, and to be a false witness would break one of the Ten Commandments. Um, And again, how do we limit the effect of sinful human beings on the justice system? And that's an important point to keep in mind, is that humans are inherently sinful. So any system of justice that we envision needs to be one that minimizes the sinful behavior of humans and kind of Offsets it or keeps it at bay. And that's going to set our system apart from one that thinks that humans are naturally good and can all be trusted. And so, in God's law, if false witnesses come forward, they are to be given the punishment that they sought to um, put upon the victim, upon the, the defendant. Now, if false witnesses have no consequences, then it it also encourages slander and false accusation. Witnesses can be easily manipulated. They can be bribed. They can be hired. If there is no penalty for speaking falsely against your neighbor under oath, uh, then, again, you open the door to rampant injustice. At the same time, if false witnesses are punished too severely, then people might not want to become witnesses. They might be afraid. They might keep quiet. they know something because they fear um, accidentally being deemed a false witness and getting a very severe punishment and that is why god's law makes it very clear that the punishment must fit the crime and that's where the idea of eye for eye tooth for tooth comes in it's lex talionis it's it's um, the punishment must fit the crime so the false witness gets the punishment that was going to be given to the defendant not extra punishment not less punishment. Your eyes shall not pity, the Lord says. And there is a sense of healthy fear. The people should be afraid not of each other, but of engaging in sin, of engaging in false accusation, in slandering, and trying to denounce their fellow neighbor and manipulate the justice system. That is what they should be afraid of. Now, one of the main themes of Scripture, um, all throughout Scripture really, is Uh, God taking the enemy's attack and using it against them. So we see all throughout Scripture ideas such as the wicked end up being consumed by their wealth and their greed, or those who are violent are overtaken by violence. As Jesus says, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. We have the picture of deceivers becoming the ones that are deceived. We have the proverb that speaks about those who fall, uh, those who dig a pit are the ones who will fall into it. We see the proverb of what a man sows, so shall he reap, okay? And then we also have a whatever measure a man uses against others will be used against him. And that is what uh, Jesus says regarding hypocrisy. Whatever standard you bring of judgment against a person, it will be used upon you. And so when it comes to false witnesses, God takes the same theme. Whatever they attempted to do to the defendant will be turned back against them. They will receive the punishment that was meant for the victim. Mercy will not be shown, and this will deter evil and sin. Interestingly, in modern English law, when one party sues another, the loser pays the legal fees of the winner. And this is related to the law of God that we just discussed. Because, again, it helps to deter frivolous lawsuits. Okay? Because if you start thinking about suing someone but you know that if you lose, you end up paying. You pay the cost of the legal fees for both them and you, and it might cause you to think twice before you either bring a false accusation or just a petty, uh, frivolous lawsuit. So it's, it's a very related concept uh, there in English law, and it's, uh, I think, quite biblical. And in the United States, and many other Western nations, perjury being a false witness under oath, is a felony. I mean, it's a serious offense, and it, and it rightly should be. Because again, if we don't live in a justice system that's based upon truth, um, we're going to quickly have no justice at all. All right, so that is our law of the day. Moving on to our study of Lex Rex, we are in chapter 12. So we'll be covering 12 and 13 today. Again, for those of you who are not familiar, we are going through the book Lex Rex, which is The Law is the King, from Samuel Rutherford, uh, who was an author uh, and a Christian theologian minister in the 1600s in England. Again, um, set the stage for John Locke's uh, work and for the American War for Independence. And so he goes through question by question um, how we understand law and government and the relationship between the king and the people. So, we are in chapter 12, Um, just going to go through that briefly. The question for chapter 12 is, is the power of government absolute, or is it limited by God's pattern for it? Now, he does address that a little bit in previous chapters, but he goes on to say in this chapter that there is no power in the civil government that citizens may never resist under any circumstances. So, absolute power does not exist. Um, and is not something that kings or any government um, should have. And he goes on to, to show why. He says, regardless of whatever contract or covenant that may exist between the ruler and the people, there's always a covenant that the ruler is under from God. He's always accountable to God, no matter what. So he may not sin. He may not violate God's law. In that regard, he does not have absolute power. He cannot simply do whatever he wants um, under God. So the ruler is always held accountable. Even if the people don't hold that ruler accountable, well, God still will. And rulers do not have the moral power to sin against God or anyone else. And Rutherford gives the example in Deuteronomy of the law where the king of Israel is obligated to write a copy of the covenant documents, the copy of the Old Testament, and must study it, and that copy must be graded by the priests. So the king is under the law of the land. Additionally, the power that the ruler has comes from the people who made him ruler. Um, and even if the people technically gave him absolute power, they actually cannot give him what they have no right to give. And Rutherford gives an example. So the people do not have the authority to commit suicide, or to destroy themselves, or to murder each other. They therefore cannot delegate that to somebody else. So even if the king were to destroy the people, he would be wielding a power that the people never gave him, and never had the authority to give him. You simply, um, you know, take it to an individual level, right? Like, It is unlawful for me to kill myself under God's law. It is therefore also unlawful for me to pay somebody or hire somebody to kill me or something like that. So you don't get to delegate your sin and call it clean. It's like money laundering, right? You don't get to launder your sin just because you outsource it to somebody else doesn't make it less sinful or wicked. And in the same way that people, um, they don't have the authority to give a a king absolute power to destroy themselves. Now, this is an important quote that Rutherford gives. All power to govern, armed with the power of the sword, is from God. The power to tyrannize is from Satan. And he goes on to say, Rulers are to help and defend the people. They have no more right to do injury to the people than a physician to harm a patient, a captain to run a ship aground, parents to kill their children, or the powerful to defraud and oppress the weak. Such powers are not from God. End quote. So, when a ruler does anything outside of God's law, he's acting against his own office, a God given office, and is, tr- and is not truly behaving like a ruler. And Rutherford uh, says this he says, No one resists the ordinance of God when resisting a ruler who acts as a tyrant. And th- that's a very important point because and basically that means that it is honoring to God to defy tyrants. Um, you're not resisting God's ordinance when you're resisting a ruler who acts as a tyrant. Because why? Because rulers are given for the good of the people, per Romans 13. That's what their job is. They are to punish evil, to avenge. They are to praise the good. And when they don't do that, when they do the opposite, they're not functioning as a ruler. They're functioning as a tyrant. Now, that's basically chapter 12 in a nutshell. Chapter 13 is very much related to that. The question is, what power does a ruler have in relation to the law and the people, and when is a ruler a tyrant? Now, this is going to be an important discussion, and he's not going to cover it all here in this chapter, Um, and it's very difficult because the question is, okay, we know that rulers do not have absolute power. Got it. There's a line to be drawn, all right? Where is that line? When does a ruler become a tyrant? And how would you know? So when can you resist a tyrant? And how? These are all important questions that we that everyone has to answer. Everyone. So first, Rutherford begins by saying that we need to differentiate between the person and the office. The office of king or ruler is essential. But, quote, an individual who uses such an office to destroy a community and nation is not within his rightful prerogatives, end quote. So, in other words, when a person is in their office of ruler and they abuse that office, they're actually not functioning within the boundaries of that office. They are operating outside of what that office requires, and so they are the ones that are violating the office. They're the ones that are breaking the rules. They're the ones that are uh, deviating. So if a ruler were to basically um, become a tyrant and abandon his roles and responsibility as a ruler, he's not actually functioning as if from God nor is the power that he's wielding from God. He's actually functioning as if he's from Satan, and the power that he wields is from Satan. Now, this again is difficult, because Rutherford acknowledges that the line between a ruler and a tyrant is not necessarily specific. But it's similar, he gives the example, it's similar to the boundaries of marriage. So for instance, in a marriage contract, there's no need to state that a husband may not murder his wife. That's kind of, you know, underlying everything. That kind of goes without saying that you don't get to murder your wife. And you don't have to list in the marriage contract all the things that the husband and the wife can and cannot do uh, to one another. Um, and just because uh, not every contingency is accounted for doesn't mean that they're not applicable or that they don't uh, they don't apply. They're not to be um, considered, right? So, in the same way, um, a contract or a covenant between the king and the people, it might not specifically say um, what where the line is, but there's still a line. And in the case of marriage, there is a line. And Scripture gives us guidance on when that line is crossed, when the wife may divorce her husband. Okay, there are certain situations where that, that applies, but it's not always easy, and it's not always... Um, a black and white moment. It can be a moment of degree over time. And that um, is something that we're going to flesh out more later uh, in Rutherford's book. Now, he says, though, that when a ruler becomes a tyrant, we may resist that unjust ruler without resisting the office. So remember, this is key. When a ruler acts like a tyrant, he is no longer functioning as ruler So consider the example of a father who seeks to sell or murder his children. He's not acting in accordance with the duties of father, and therefore he may be resisted. If the father tries to sell his children to slavery, uh, the, the mother and the children should resist. If a father seeks to murder his children, they should defend themselves, they should resist, the wife should resist. But when they resist such a man... That doesn't mean that they are speaking out against fatherhood in general or that they're seeking to undermine or destroy the idea of father or that the role of father in the family is to be done away with. Not at all. Insofar as the man acts the part of a father, he is to be honored and respected and obeyed as such. But when he murders or abandons his children, he ceases to be father. He's abdicating his role as father and may be resisted and stopped. So in the same way, the people may resist a tyrant without resisting the office that the tyrant occupies. You can still respect the office of president while resisting the man who happens to be president. And that is an important point that Rutherford brings up. So the line between ruler and tyrant is one of degree over time, typically. And Rutherford provides a good quote here. He says, quote, A tyrant is one who habitually sins against the universal good of the subjects and the state and subverts law, End quote. Now, again, we need some more details on that. And Rutherford will provide more in future chapters. But that's a good starting point. A person becomes a tyrant when they habitually, so it's not... Onesie-twosie, it's continual unrepentant um, sin against the subjects that that are under him against the citizens and against the state and one who subverts the law because remember the king is under the law he he's not he's not uh, exempt from the law so if he's continually um, subverting the law harming the people harming the state not repentant not um, stopping then one can say he is He is functioning as tyrant and therefore should be resisted. So to conclude these two chapters, rulers do not have absolute power, so there does exist a line that places a limit upon the ruler. Where the line is is not easy to discern, just as it's not easy to discern when it's time to um, file for divorce. Uh, Typically, abuse is gradual, and so resistance is also gradual over time but eventually a line is crossed when we change from passive resistance basically just not doing what they're what they say to the active removal of that person from that office that they hold now we might we might all disagree on where that line is but i think very few people will say that there is no line so the question is not um you know can we ever resist or can the people ever replace their ruler I don't think that's the question. Most people would agree that that there is a line at some point where that can be done lawfully. The question is, where is that line? And we're going to need um, to look at Scripture um, to see that and to find that. All right, so hopefully you found that to be uh, useful. Again, I recommend picking up Rutherford's book whenever you get the chance. Uh, take a look at it. There are a couple versions out there. There's a long version, and there's also the abridged version. I, I have both, but... Uh, I've been using the abridged version in these uh, in these discussions here on the podcast. So, uh, thank you again for tuning in. I hope that you have a blessed new year. And until next time, take care. And God bless.